Well, you wouldn't know it by my last name, Swanson, but I am uh, half Italian. comes from my mother's side, as my grandmother was born in Italy. And being born in Italy essentially makes you Catholic. You're pretty much born Catholic, and my mother, or grandmother rather, was a very devout Catholic. I remember seeing her sitting on the couch upstairs, my mom's house, just praying the rosary, the Hail Marys, the Our Fathers, over and over and over again, nonstop. And I didn't know why. Why would you pray the same prayers over and over again? What would drive a person to say the same little prayers in her lifetime thousands of times? I didn't know. There are other examples, extreme examples of Catholic devotion. There's a place in Ireland named Krog Patrick. It's a 2,500-foot mountain where, according to tradition, St. Patrick fasted and prayed atop uh, for 40 days in 441 A.D. And so now each year in the last Sunday in July, Catholic pilgrims, thousands of them, ascend the mountain for a mass at the summit. And many of them do it barefoot. They go all the way barefoot. Again, what would motivate a person to do that? Why would you put yourself through so much torment? It gets far more extreme, though. Throughout history, many have resorted to forms of intense self-discipline as an expression of their devotion. An ancient community of nuns was known for their extreme fasting. Some would eat only one meal a day, but others would, they would only eat one meal after several days of rigorous fasting, just their whole life. There's also stories of monks and nuns wearing a cilice. Originally, a cilice was an undergarment made from very coarse animal hair worn on the skin meant to provide constant discomfort. Later, it would be a chain, a little metal chain worn around the thigh with little tiny hooks on it to provide constant pain. I get bothered by the little tag on the back of a shirt. So that sounds like miserable to me and I'm not sure why anyone would do that. And then, of course, there was flagellation. Monks, ancient and modern, have taken to whipping their backs as a form of devotion. Notable is St. John Vianney. When people came to him for confession, he would let them go with very light penances, and then he would go in secret and severely flog himself on their behalf. At the top of the list, though, it would have to be the modern practice found in the Philippines, where on Good Friday you have several men who, these penitents, they carry wooden crosses, they crawl on rough pavement, they whip their backs bloody, and finally they're crucified. Literally, they're tied or nailed to crosses for three hours, mimicking what Christ did. Ruben Anahe, 53 years old, he's been crucified in this ceremony 28 times. So again, it begs the question, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do any of these things? What motivates a person to go to such extremes in their religious devotion? And furthermore, why don't we do these things? As as Protestants, this list of extreme activities is not on our religious to-do list, so what's the difference here? Why are these accepted expressions of, of worship or devotion in Catholicism? And they still are. Not much has changed. You'll still find Catholics rigorously praying, giving alms, fasting, going on pilgrimages to visit holy sites and relics. So why do Catholics do all this? Well, the answer has to do with the Roman Catholic understanding of justification, which is akin to salvation. This is a a fundamental difference between Christianity and Catholicism, a difference we want to further explore this morning. As most of you know by now, this month of October, we're devoting to celebrate the Protestant Reformation as it marks the 500-year anniversary of, of what? Of, of really the rediscovery of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which had been hopelessly distorted among the many unbelie- unbiblical beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church. And so this month, we're highlighting many of the serious differences between Catholicism and Christianity, which, or, or Protestants, I should say, Protestants being the name given to these, these new Christians who were protesting the many abuses of the Catholic system. And the intention here with these Sundays is, is probably to inform you where I very much want you to know both what you believe and, and why you believe it. You should be thoroughly convinced of everything you, you say and do as a Christian from, from Scripture, 
And so we are covering throughout the month of October several fundamental contrasts between Catholicism and biblical Christianity. And along these lines, as I alluded to, the most significant contrast of them all concerns how to understand justification, which it really is a big deal. It gets back to the age-old question, what must I do to be saved? Or to put it another way, how is sinful man made right with a perfectly righteous God? Both Catholics and Christians understand this is a righteousness issue. We need righteousness. God is perfectly righteous. We're not. We need to be perfectly righteous to enter his presence, to go to heaven. So the question is, how, how does that happen? How do we be or become perfectly righteous? Well, here you will find two fundamentally different answers amounting to two different ways of salvation. So that's why I said it, it's a big deal. Both can't be right. Either Catholics or Protestants are in serious error. And so this is something we need to figure out. And that's what we're going to continue to do this morning. For us, we have one question, just one question. What does the Bible say? That's enough for us. But before we get to that, I need to give you a little download on Roman Catholics, on what they believe about justification, or I should say salvation. So this, this will be another more of a, an extended introduction, but you really have to understand where, where they're coming from, understand this contrast if you're going to be able to evaluate it. So, so bear with me. Salvation for Catholics. It begins with God's grace. Something they called first grace or actual grace. This is where God initially reaches out to a person, giving them the grace to enable them to seek God, to have faith. This grace can be resisted, so a person must yield to its influence. When they do, though, their soul is prepared for baptism and justification. For a person to actually enter into a state of salvation, though, they must be baptized. Baptism, according to Catholics, removes the stain of original sin on the soul. And it's also the moment where God's sanctifying grace is infused into the soul, enabling them to do good works. But baptism for Catholics, it is completely necessary for salvation. In fact, the Council of Trent declared, quote, if anyone shall say that baptism is optional, that is not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema, end quote. And that, that word just means damned, by the way. So at baptism, a person enters into what's called initial justification, Initial justification. You hear the word justification, just think being made right with God. We're not right with God. We need to be right with God. And so for Catholics, baptism sets you on that path that you are initially justified. You're on your way. This initial aspect of justification is said by them to be by grace. This grace is not merited, not earned. And so when you hear Catholics saying, that they believe in salvation by grace. This is often what they're talking about, this initial justification. But this is not the end of it. There's a second aspect of justification, which is a process that continues all lifelong, your entire life, you will be being justified. Remember at baptism, that's when your soul is infused with God's sanctifying grace. And this grace, in turn, enables you to perform what's called meritorious works, deeds of merit. And as a person cooperates with God's sanctifying grace, they, they progress in good works and they merit God's favor. And the more works you perform, the more your level of justification increases. So your justification, your right standing with God, goes up, goes down, up and down, and you want it to go up and up and up. So as you perform these meritorious works, you're, you, you merit for yourself more of God's grace, which leads to an increase in your justification and ultimately the attaining of eternal life when you are perfectly justified. The Catholic Catechism states this, this is our official teaching, quote, since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. But moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then 
merit for ourselves and for others, the grace is needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life, end quote. If you didn't get that, we can merit for ourselves the graces needed for the attainment of eternal life. So that initial grace and justification, you can't merit that, okay, but the second grace, sanctifying grace, your continual justification, you can merit, you must merit that or earn it. Already take note, Catholics will say they believe in salvation by grace, justification by grace. But they're speaking about initial justification, not final justification. Grace plays some role, but it's not grace alone. Rather, your final justification is very much dependent on your works, your meritorious works. You have to earn or merit your justification or right standing before God by being righteous, by doing deeds of righteousness. This second aspect of justification, like I said, takes place throughout your whole life where a person hopes to to earn enough merit to be finally justified before God. But you never really know. You never know. There's no assurance of salvation in the Catholic system. You, you don't know if you've attained the level of righteousness required for God to accept you until you die. In reality, very few will make it straight from death to heaven. That's for the saints. Most still die with some stain of sin on their soul, and therefore they must be further purged. And so they go to purgatory for X thousands of years where they're purged of all unrighteousness and can be fully justified and enter into heaven. Now also take note, for Catholics, God's grace can be earned, can also be lost. If along the way in life a person commits a mortal sin, which is a serious sin, the justifying grace they gained at baptism is erased from the soul. These serious sins, like breaking the Ten Commandments, for example, they're called mortal because they sever the soul from God's sanctifying grace that was gained at baptism. So that's, that's gone, that's lost. And if a person were to die in such a state, you commit a mortal sin, and then you die, you go straight to hell. The only remedy for such a person before they die is, is to be re-justified through the sacrament of penance or reconciliation. This is the second sacrament. It consists of contrition, which is sorrow over your sin, Then there's confession, where you go in the box, you confess your sins to the priest, the priest being the authoritative representative of Christ. The priest then absolves you of your sin. But for you to gain final forgiveness, the last step is called satisfaction, where you must perform works of satisfaction. These are more deeds of merit. This time you are meriting or earning God's forgiveness. These works are referred to as penance, If you heard the word penance before, that's what this is talking about. And they're imposed by the priest on the sinner in 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 satisfaction, corresponding to the gravity and the nature of the sins committed. So the worst thing you do, the more penance you got to do to make up for it. Deeds of penance might include prayers. This is why you find Catholics praying the Hail Marys and Our Father so much, they're, they're doing penance. Same goes for fasting and almsgiving, very common penances, works of mercy, giving to the poor. Self-denial are included as well. All the examples I gave at the beginning, those were all deeds of penance. Those were things Catholics do, have been known to do, to, to earn this final forgiveness from the temporal effects of their sin. And sometimes, especially in the Middle Ages, pilgrimages were given, imposed on someone as a form of penance. Travel back then was a serious hardship, especially if you're like going to the Holy Land. It could take several years out of your life, come at great expense, and it had many dangers like robbers, sickness, disease, wild animals, the elements. So the hardships of travel were seen as punishment enough for your sin. Now, if you're really bad, though, the priest might make you go on pilgrimage barefoot or in tatters, sometimes even naked. 
You would not be allowed to spend more than one night in any location, and you had to beg for all your food. Just sufficient suffering to basically merit forgiveness. Also, the more serious the sin, the further away you had to go. In 13th century France, these penance pilgrimages were classified as minor, major, and overseas. It actually became quite a convenient form of punishment for criminals. You have someone do a crime, and instead of having to go through the trouble of jailing them, you just send them on a pilgrimage. And so in 1319, Roger de Benito was sent to Rome, Santiago, and Jerusalem for murdering a bishop. Sometimes they had to travel with the murder weapon hanging around their neck, and they had to collect signatures at all the relics and shrines to prove they had really been there. You put it on, there's you know, endless examples of all this, but you put it all together, and, and what do you have? You have a system of merit. How do we deal with our negative righteousness before God? How, how do we gain forgiveness? How do we clear our record? Well, through penitential deeds, deeds of penance. And on the, on the positive side, how do we gain positive righteousness before God? Now, how do we gain right standing before him or or justification? Here it's through deeds of merit, meritorious deeds. Catholics deny that they teach salvation by works. They say salvation is by grace. That salvation is impossible apart from God's grace. God's grace acts first, and they do speak of God's grace, but they're masters of doublespeak because their salvation is completely intermingled with works. Deeds of righteousness and penance that earn justification. And this this justifying grace or sanctifying grace, it is earned, which defeats the very definition of grace. If it's earned, it's, it's not grace. And so they say grace is necessary to save, but it's not sufficient to save. Faith is necessary to save, but it's not sufficient to save. Rather, faith plus works is needed. Grace plus works is needed. And what they've done is to confuse and conflate together justification with what's called sanctification. The Bible says that our our good deeds, our works, are the fruits of our justification, the results of our new birth and right standing with God, not the cause of our justification. But Catholic dogma says the exact opposite. Let me read a few more declarations from the the famous Council of Trent. Canon 24 says, quote, If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema, end quote. So in other words, If you say good works are not the cause of justification, you're anathema. Good works, the cause of justification. Canon 9, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema, end quote. So here again, if you say that faith is the only condition to be justified and not works, your anathema. So literally, they're teaching that your good works are a necessary cause of justification. That, that's literally the definition of justification by works. Justification by works. Your, your justification, your right standing before God is very much dependent on your meritorious and penitential deeds. That's justification by works, and that's a different gospel. Really no gospel at all. There's no good news there. Because in reality, the only thing we we do merit before God is is judgment, is death. You can't be good enough to earn a place before him. So this Catholic view of justification offers no hope but only despair. Because when you finally realize how holy God is and how not holy we are, you realize you have no chance of being justified on your own before him. Even with a little helping grace, you'll never be perfect enough to be just, perfectly righteous before him. And so it leads to despair. And it was the same despair that led Martin Luther 500 years ago to go 
back to the scriptures. And there he rediscovered the truth that had been buried under all these strata of, of tradition and dogma. He found that the good news that we can be justified or made right before God entirely by grace through faith. We can receive justification, righteousness, and complete forgiveness purely by God's grace working through our faith in Christ apart from works. The only work that can save us is Christ's finished work on the cross. And by virtue of that work, we can be forgiven and even counted righteous. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Catholics speak of faith and grace, but it's not faith alone. It's not grace alone. And this is why these became the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. It's not scripture plus tradition. It's scripture alone. Sola scriptura. It's not faith plus works. It's faith alone. Sola fide. And it's not grace plus deeds. It's Grace alone, sola gratia. We're saved by God's grace alone, working through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. That's the core of the gospel. And now with with the the second half of our time, I want to display this truth to you from Scripture. We've seen now through that extended intro that the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification, which is by grace plus works. And now let's let's turn to Scripture and, and examine grace alone. Like Oliver said tonight, or this morning rather, we're going to focus on the third sola, sola gratia, grace alone. And like I said at the beginning, our concern is simple. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible actually teach that meritorious deeds contribute to our justification or right standing before God? Or is salvation really a gift of God's grace from start to finish? Well, let's find out. Open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to cover a lot of ground with the time we have left, but we'll start off where Oliver left off last week, covering sola fide. Faith alone and grace alone, they're really tied at the hip, so this is a natural place for us to begin But I want you to notice again just how clearly the Apostle Paul states that our justification, our right standing before God, comes to us not by works, but by grace through faith. Romans 3, look at verse 21. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. How are we justified? What did we just read? As a gift by his grace. This word for gift inherently communicates that this grace is unearned and undeserved. Hence, it's a gift. In no sense is our justification said to be earned or merited before God in any way. Rather, it comes to us as a gift on the basis of what? On the basis of Christ's death. See, we don't need to do things to satisfy God's justice or wrath, like go on a pilgrimage barefoot or fast for three days. Why? Because Jesus already completely made satisfaction for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, and and he's sufficient. He covered it all. We, therefore, simply access this free justification. How? Not by works, but by faith. Just by faith. Verse 27, where then is boasting is excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart 
from the works of the law. This is why we, we don't boast. We glorify God in our salvation, not, not ourselves. If works or deeds were involved, we could boast. The saints, they could all boast. But instead, we give all the glory to God for justification. Now, how clear is it? It's by faith, apart from the works of the law, which is precisely the opposite of Catholic dogma. Now, you continue in chapter 4 of Romans, and Paul highlights Abraham as the chief example of justification by faith. Because how was Abraham justified? Simply by faith. He believed God, and it was, what, credited to him as righteousness. It realized Abraham in that moment, he was still a sinner. But by faith, God regarded him, credited him righteousness. That's the whole point. Catholics make the mistake of confusing justification with sanctification, that you're only just before God when you're perfectly sanctified, meaning like actually perfect. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. That, that's the point. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You don't become perfectly godly and then God justifies you like they teach. God's in the business of justifying ungodly sinners by grace. Then this righteousness is credited to your account. It's not not merited. It's not earned. It's credited, given. On the condition of what? Just faith alone. Works can't be a condition for this grace gift. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It would be wages. But faith alone stands as the instrument or the means of receiving this gift. Because what is faith? What is faith but the admission that I can't do it? I can't save myself. I can't get to God by myself. I do deserve judgment. That Christ is my only hope. And without stretch hands, you're just calling for mercy. That's all that faith is. But by that, we can be saved. And so he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, For this reason, it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Faith and grace, they must go together. Already, I hope it's pretty clear. It should be. This justification being made right with God, it comes by grace through faith. And naturally, what's the result? Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith. Not, not we, we're continually justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This once for all justification results in perfect peace and hope before God. Note, however, in the Catholic system, there there is no peace. There's no rest or hope. You have no idea if you're at peace with God. You live in fear and dread that you might not be righteous enough to, to merit your way to heaven, to have enough righteousness of your own to, that God will accept you. Or worse yet, what if you commit a moral sin and you don't make it to confession before you die and it's all for nothing, you just go straight to hell? I mean, what kind of justification is that? What kind of peace with God is that? It doesn't sound like Romans 5.1 to me. Now, continuing in chapter 5, now Paul builds a contrast between Adam and and Jesus, the first Adam and the second Adam. And what does he highlight? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he highlights sola gratia, grace alone. That salvation through Christ comes just as a gift given by God's grace. Just for example, look at verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, but the free gift is not like the transgression." For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, much more did 
the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And so all throughout the chapter, salvation is this grace gift. Now, how nonsensical is it to speak of salvation as a free gift of God's grace when in reality you, you still have to work for it? Now, that's called a bait and switch, right? It's like, it's like free cruises. Angel and I actually won, we won a free cruise a couple years ago by attending one of those timeshare presentations. Only it's not really a free cruise. You have to pay for all the port fees and all the taxes, which are way more expensive than the tiny cruise fee. Now, thankfully, we actually knew this going into it. We just kind of for fun. But can that really be described as a free gift? I mean, we still had to pay our hard-earned money to get on board. And so Catholics, they teach that, you know, Jesus, he earned you a ticket to heaven through his merit on the cross. But if you really want to get on board, you've got to, you know, meet the rest of the way. You've got to pay the rest of your ticket price. You've got to come up with some merit of your own if you really want to get on the ship. That's not, that's not true grace. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And so Romans 6, verse 23, the famous verse says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift. The what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it a free gift or do we have to work for it? Can it still be called a free gift if we must work for it? The only thing we work for is death. Wages, that refers to what we deserve, what we merit. This is what we have earned by our deeds. The only problem is the only thing we earn is is death, is judgment, is condemnation. That's because we're sinners. We're radically depraved. We're in rebellion against a perfectly holy God. And even even our best works, our most righteous deeds... They're still like filthy rags before God, says Isaiah 64, verse 6. Instead, our only hope is this grace, the free gift of life in Christ. Jesus, he's the living water, right? And what does Jesus himself say at the very end of the Bible? Revelation 21, verse 6. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life, without cost. It's free. That's the whole point. This water, this living water, Christ himself, it's free. He gives without cost. There's no hidden fees. Look, if you have to work for it, it's no longer grace by definition. You can call it grace. The second you mingle works of merit in there, it's no longer grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6. I'll read. He says, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix grace with works. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. It's like brass. Do you know the composition of brass? You don't. I don't either. I had to look it up. But (laughs) brass is a metal alloy composed by combining copper and zinc. And when you put it together, it's no longer copper. It's no longer zinc. It's now something else. And when you mix grace plus works, grace is no longer grace. It's now something else. But in this case, the the alloy of grace plus works, it's not stronger, it's weaker. And not only is grace mixed with works weaker, it also makes Christ's work meaningless. Christ's work, that's the only work that really matters. But just think, if we can in some way merit our own justification, our own right standing with God, we can earn that, Why did Jesus really need to die? Why don't we just do that? Why did God have to send his son? And that's precisely the point Paul makes over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, which I'll read. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Galatians 2, 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, and Christ died needlessly. I hope you're getting it. Let me boil down now the the Protestant view of justification, which I hope you see it's the biblical view of justification. Justification is not a process. That's sanctification, and they're different. 
Rather, justification is an instantaneous legal declaration. It's a change in status before God. It's like when, when a couple gets married at the altar. They're saying their vows. You know, nothing changes in them. They don't change. Their height and weight doesn't change. Their appearance doesn't change. Their, their character doesn't change. They don't change. But as their marriage covenant is sealed, instantaneously their legal status changes. They're now married. And their lives sure will look differently on the other side of that change. And similarly, when God awakens us to the new covenant and brings us to faith, he justifies us, which is a twofold legal declaration. First, God declares the sinner not guilty of all their sins. And second, God declares the sinner perfectly righteous. Not guilty and perfectly righteous. That's the legal status change. In the moment of your salvation, which we call justification, God declares it. Now you might wonder, how can God do that? That doesn't sound fair or just, because we're not not guilty. But realize, God is not merely sweeping our sins under the rug. Rather, it's on account of Christ's finished work that such a declaration can be made. Because in justification, God is reckoning or imputing our entire debt of sin to Christ's account. And he, he made payment for it. He pays for it all entirely and makes satisfaction. And at the same time, God is also reckoning or crediting Christ's account of perfect righteousness to our account, by which we now are before God perfectly just and able to be in his presence. This is starting to sound like some good news. And this is the gospel. The only way we can ever stand before a perfectly holy God is by his own grace working through Christ. And so we are justified and this change in status before God comes as a gift. How, how, how does this happen to you? you? You don't earn this. You don't merit this. It comes all by God's grace. It starts with grace when God regenerates a sinner, bringing them to new spiritual life, giving them new eyes. God then gives the gift of faith and repentance through conversion. And as we respond by believing in Jesus, so we are then justified. Again, our faith being merely the means or the instrument upon which we receive this grace gift, justification. But, but get, get clear of the big point. Like we said before, salvation is a righteousness issue. We need to be perfectly righteous before God to enter heaven. How do we do that? How can we be that? And the point is, on our own, it's not possible. There's nothing we can do. Self-righteousness doesn't cut it. We're defiled. Everything our, our defiled hands produces is defiled. It's unacceptable. We need an outside righteousness, what was called an alien righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. But that's precisely what's promised to us in the gospel. Listen to Philippians 3.9. We, we learned not too long ago where Paul says he desired to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That verse, just it couldn't be any clearer. Like, yeah, I don't want any of my own righteousness. It's not going to do. I just want the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so here we see that the great exchange that takes place in justification. This is what makes grace amazing grace. Where Christ, in one hand, takes off our, our filthy robes of sin and guilt and condemnation and gives us instead his robe of perfect righteousness. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ron Rhodes gives a helpful illustration of a person trying to be saved or justified through self-effort. It's like a man trying to sail across the ocean in a sailboat, but there's no wind. And eventually he gets frustrated by the lack of progress, so he goes up to the mast and he starts pushing on the mast with all of his might, and he succeeds in rocking the boat back and forward, making a few small waves around the boat. So he looks over, he sees the waves, 
He feels the rocking. He thinks he's making progress. So he, he, try, he pushes harder and he continues with his rigorous effort thinking he's crossing the sea. But in reality, his efforts are getting him literally nowhere. And such is the deceitfulness of self-effort before God, self-righteousness and seeking to be vindicated before him. Our only hope, our only chance is to be carried by the wind of God's grace. Well, let's finish with one more passage. We would be remiss if we didn't include Ephesians chapter 2. So turn there now. I told you we'd cover lots of ground. I could point you to Titus 3, which is another equally clear and stunning verse. In fact, while you turn to Ephesians 2, I will read Titus 3, 4 through 7. And just try and listen how clear this is. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we'd be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How clear is that? I feel like I keep saying that, but that's it's just, it's just true. We're, we're justified. We're saved. Not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. Literally, that's everything we've been talking about. But rather, we're justified by God's grace alone and his mercy. It's literally the opposite of Catholic justification. Equally clear is Ephesians chapter 2. It's familiar to most of you, I'm sure. Paul starts off in verses 1 through 3, describing our condition before salvation. Like verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What's our condition before salvation? It's death, spiritual death. We weren't sick or weak. We were dead, enslaved to the world, to the flesh, and to Satan. We were born into this condition, being by nature children of wrath, without any hope. There's nothing we could do to change our status, just like a corpse can do nothing to avail itself to new life. It's, it's just dead. We were spiritually dead. Our only hope is found in the first two words of verse 4. But God. We were dead. We could do nothing. But God. God intervened on our behalf to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the whole point of this gospel. And he acted by his mercy and his grace. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did we do for ourselves here? Nothing but die. Nothing. What did God do for us? He saved us by making us alive together with Christ, raising us up, seating us with him in the heavenly places. Why did God do this for us? Because we merited it, we, we earned it. It says nothing of that, but simply according to his free mercy and grace. And it doesn't say, you know, God, by his mercy, cleansed us from the original stain of sin on our soul, but then left the rest up to us. It doesn't say any of that. Christ, rather, gets all the glory here because this salvation is his through and through. That he did it all. And that's why you see the purpose of, 
of this salvation in this passage. That Why did God do this? He saved us that we might show off the riches of his grace and kindness toward us. This is amazing grace. And the next pair of famous verses really drives it home. You all know this. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's so painfully clear. It makes you wonder how anyone could, could get it so wrong. But such is the heart of fallen man trying to constantly rob God of his glory and exalt himself and his efforts. But no, this, this salvation by faith comes entirely as a grace gift from God. It expressly says, not as a result of works. In any way, not as a result. We're not justified as a result of works. It just says, not as a result of works. And by contrast, what did the Council of Trent declare? Again, Canon 24. If anyone says, justification is not caused and increased by good works, they're anathema. If anyone says, Good works are merely the fruit and signs of justification. They're anathema. But isn't that literally like what we just read? And also don't forget verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul is saying precisely what they just anathematized, that we are saved apart from works, by grace alone, through faith alone. But then we will, after being justified, bear good fruit and good works. That these deeds of righteousness, they're not the, the source of our justification, but precisely the result. But now you can see why, why the difference between Catholicism and Christianity is such a big deal. Where you basically have the Catholic Church which after, after a thousand years of tradition clouding the scriptures, they've come to actually anathematize the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures. That they anathematize faith alone and grace alone. And for this, we, we just can't stand. We can't tolerate. This is why the reformers broke away from the Catholic Church, and this is why we continue that protest today. 500 years later. And instead, we will happily stake our ground on the solid ground of grace and grace alone. Like Paul said back in Ephesians 1, that God saved us according to the riches of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're saved by grace to the praise of grace. This is our only standing before God, but it is a sufficient standing. It's all we need that Christ is enough. And so we will take delight in the true good news of this gospel and proclaim to captives that they can be set free of all of their sin and guilt and condemnation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. In fact, I want to invite you now to receive this saving grace by faith Right now, if you haven't already, for anyone here to know that you can be saved, you can be freed from the penalty of all of your sins and instead inherit eternal life, that Jesus is the fountain of living water, and just go to him, drink freely, and receive the new and eternal life he offers. And to do this, you must simply come to the end of yourself, realizing that you, you can't earn favor before God. You can't get to him on your own. That you have nothing to bring. No deeds, no merit, nothing but condemnation. That's all you've merited. But with this humility, and as you see the grace of God in the face of Christ, you just simply cry out to him for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God promises to hear that cry of faith and answer and save. So go to him and trust in the only work that matters, which is Christ's work on the cross. And for the rest of us, let this reminder of sola gratia, grace alone, let it deepen your thankfulness before God. Everything you have, material and spiritual, 
you can attribute all that favor to, to God. You're not good. I'm not good. We don't deserve any of this. It's simply we stand by grace alone. God saved us for this reason, so now therefore exalt God for this grace. With, with your lips, with your lives, live in light of this grace, a holy life, not to merit anything, but because you love your Lord. And then sing, praise, worship God for his grace. This is why Protestants have developed such a rich tradition of singing God's grace. And we can do that wholeheartedly because we know his amazing grace. His grace that is greater than all our sins. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Our great God, we do praise your name now for your amazing grace grace. Your grace that is greater than all of our sins combined. And Lord, in your mercy, in your love, you you intervene to save us, fallen man, knowing we could do nothing on our own, knowing we could not save ourselves, knowing if you left us to our own devices, we all would perish eternally. But in love, you sent Christ, your son, to die on that cross, to rise from the dead, to pay the full penalty uh, for our sins that he is the only perfectly righteous one, and now, by faith in him, we can be saved. We can be reckoned as not guilty and righteous. That's, that's our ticket to heaven, Lord. That's the only way we can be reconciled to you. But this is, this is good news, rather, because this is sufficient. This, that's all we could possibly ask for or need. It's more than enough. So we thank you. We thank you for this saving grace. We pray for anyone here now who has not come to saving grace. They've not come to know you, that you work in their lives right now. You open their blind eyes right now. Cause them to see, to come, to cry out, and that they would receive by faith. And for us, Lord, now we we just want to respond with, with praise, with worship. May our lives be lives of living sacrifices, for we have been bought with such a price. And may we sing your praises now as you are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.